0: I'm Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime <laughs> New England. What's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome back to another episode. Thank
1: you for joining us on this very warm, very Thursday. Maybe it's a Thursday. Maybe you're listening it on a Sunday in 2026. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Katie, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm doing good, too. Great. That's wonderful. I'm glad to hear it. And, you know, would it be an episode of True Crime New England if I didn't immediately talk about how hot it is and how much I hate it? Because here's a fun fact. It is currently 90 degrees. And I want to die. I just hate it. I just hate it. And I went on vacation last week and to a lake house. And that was lovely. But there's no ACs in the lake house. And so just a measly old fan didn't quite cut it. Oh, God. Yeah. So. You know I was just having a good time. Jesus Christ. I was. I was having a good time, but I was a
0: little miserable. I don't blame you. I tried not to complain. I really did. <laughs> There's been some wacky weather these days. Like, Not to be a doomsday person, but we genuinely really are seeing the true effects of climate change happen full force. Yep. Like heat waves. There was a tsunami warning in California not too long ago. The water temperatures off of Florida and around Italy, too are very dangerously hot to it's threatening sea life. In the Midwest, currently, at the time of this recording, they're having record-breaking heat waves that are threatening crops. Yep. And then Vermont, our neighbors to the Northwest, had some crazy flooding. Yeah. Flooding that they have not seen since Hurricane Irene back in 2011. Right. So, like, it's half bad. the state was just decimated. I even had a warning last night for Tornado Watch. And we don't get tornadoes in New England, you guys. It's very rare. So it really is hitting the fan. It's
1: been, it's kind of scary. And it makes me nervous as a person who wants to have children to even bring children into that. That's a whole nother story, but it's very apparent that there are things going on. Mm -hmm. And you know, that kind of really nicely relays into what we're going to update you guys about. Because if you keep track, which I bet no one does but us, and that's okay. (laughs) We have a swear jar update. As well as the next organization, which ties very pretty, Katie, into what you were just talking about.
0: Thank you. That was my intention.
1: I loved it. Thank you. Guys, you have no idea how clever Katie is. She <laughs> is just on top of it. Liz, you, you flatter me. <laughs> okay. Should we, should we turn off the recording real quick? <laughs> just kidding, everyone. So Katie and I. Naturally, as you guys know, every 10 episodes we'll count up how many times we save the F bomb, and after 10 episodes we'll total it up and we'll donate it to a different charity. Our charity, this set of 10 episodes, Katie.
0: We are donating to Haven, which is the largest violence prevention and support service agency in New Hampshire. I'm going to read you off their website. They are dedicated to addressing public health through violence prevention and providing services to improve the well-being of children and families. Beautiful. Their mission is to prevent sexual assaults, domestic violence, and stalking, and to support and empower all women, men, non-binary, and transgender adults, youth, and families to heal from abuse and rebuild their lives. They are just phenomenal. They recognize that any form of abuse, domestic violence, stalking can happen to anyone. It most commonly happens to women, but they recognize and support everybody in that process. They had their phone number plastered in all of the bathroom stalls in the community college I went to in Portsmouth. Yep. They have on their website... A little feature, close quickly, that will jump out of the website in case you are seeking help and your abuser is nearby. There's resources for how to help a friend who's going through abuse if they're not in the position to help themselves. Right. They are just wonderful. And they had a booth at Portsmouth Pride a couple weeks ago that I was at. And I walked up to them, they're getting free pins. And I mm-hmm. grabbed a pin. I was like, You guys are great. I co-host a podcast and we're gonna be donating money to you guys soon, just because you guys are wonderful. That's and the lady's awesome. like, wow, that's so cool great thank you guys so much i was like no thank you so much yeah like you guys are doing the lord's work and then some absolutely so they are more than deserving i wish we could donate hundreds and hundreds of dollars yeah you guys go to havennewhampshire.org. you guys could donate as well if you want to but yeah that's our current cause that's going to be receiving a chunk of change from us absolutely and per usual our chunk of change it's a nice one Guys,
1: if you remember last time we did a swear jar roundup, it was like earth shattering because Katie (laughs) beat me in fucks. It was incredible. I was on a high for weeks. I felt light. I was like, I'm changing. No, that didn't happen. It went back (laughs) to where it was. This round, episode 91 to 100, we had some episodes we had some episodes where we were equally passionate. And, you know, there was one episode that I had five, you had five. There was one where I had five, you had six. Like it was a good back and forth. Of course, there were some where like I had seven and you had three. So, you know, it was still was kind of like the old days. <laughs> we're back in it, but in the end, I had a total of 39 F words. Katie had a total of 32. And that. Equaled once added together via calculator and not brain, 71 F words, i.e. $71.
0: Yeah. And if you guys have been paying attention to our very recent merch drop, we have a swear jar t shirt. That was designed by a lovely listener, Mare, and also two lovely listeners, Mother and Son, thank you guys so much, you know who you are, decided that it would be a good idea, and they actually suggested this to us, that whenever we sell a swear jar t-shirt that we should donate some of the money from the sale to the current organization we're donating to the swear jar. So we have so far, our merge is still pretty fresh, but at the time of this recording and our planning out the swear jar, we had sold a swear jar t-shirt. So we will be adding $5 from that sale to the donation for Haven, New Hampshire. Which makes it a grand total of $76.
1: And I'm glad to do it. Hell yeah. I love it. I will admit, I wish you would swear more, but (laughs) I'm okay giving money away to good causes. And this is certainly one of them. So we will be making a donation in True Crime New England's name for all of us people, uh, as in the audience as well for Haven, New Hampshire. And it's going to be, you know, every charity will take any cent, you know, and I'm, we're glad to, we're glad to do it for sure. And the reason why Katie is so fucking clever, See, there you go. I gave you one is that she perfectly segued the very beginning of our conversation into our next organization. And I do want to say guys, we at the very beginning, we were like, okay, you pick one, then I'll pick the next one. And then you pick Katie has had so many good ideas. I picked one or two and you've just been, she's been so good and she, you always have great ideas. So Thank I'm, you. I'm really excited. I think this organization is. More than timely, more than appropriate. And I think it'll be
0: really helpful. And our first one for the state of Vermont. That's right. So, as we talked about, Vermont has just been getting slammed with these floods, like record shattering floods. Entire towns have been underwater, like their streets are underwater. Bridges are being taken out, roads are being taken out. Just the footage that I've seen. And I actually went up to Burlington, Vermont, two days ago at the time of this recording. Just for the day, it was beautiful, but as I was driving, I was passing through towns and driving over roads. I remember driving over a bridge, and I was just like, wow, very clearly this bridge several days ago was underwater. Like There were reeds and just dried up mud and debris, and there were cleanup crews in hazmat suits, and just driving through these little towns and seeing everybody just cleaning out their houses and having all of their belongings out on the curb to be picked up for disaster recovery like it was really sad it's awful so vermont is in new england vermont we love you guys go bernie sanders like you guys are fabulous yeah the vermont main street flood recovery fund is raising money specifically to provide grants to vermont small business owners impacted by the flooding So, you know, you could always donate to American Red Cross. You could always donate to these big national organizations. But this one specifically really struck me because they're focusing on small businesses and small business owners. And that includes farmers. I can't tell you how many fields that I saw. Family farms, their cornfields underwater decimated, their crops rotting in the soil. There goes a huge chunk of income. Absolutely. And right
1: on the main page of their website, there's a picture of the flood in their downtown area. And this flood goes up to the middle of the doors. It's intense.
0: It's really bad. People were kayaking. I saw a video of someone kayaking down that very street to go rescue their brother or something that was trapped on the other side. It's insane. That's awful. But yeah, I just I think that a lot of times with disasters, people tend to focus on them Right in the passing days after the disaster, but by the time we're done with the swear jar. Mm-hmm and we're ready to donate money, I think that this will be old news. And that usually is when people need help the most. Because right right when something happens, they get a surge of money, a surge of donations, Mm -hmm. a surge of volunteers. And then as the attention dies down, so do the donations and the volunteers. Absolutely. So I think that this will still be fresh in everybody's minds and everybody's hearts, especially in New England and the Vermont area by the time we are ready to have our totals and donate. But I think that A chunk of money going their way at the time that we're able to do it will still be very beneficial. I think,
1: regardless, if they, you know, any amount would be beneficial for any amount of time. For sure. Honestly. Because with the way the world's going now, it could happen again so
0: soon. Seriously, especially with all the rain we've been getting this summer. Like, who knows? They could clean up a street and then two days later get another flash flood and then you're back to square one. Exactly.
1: So we are very, very, very excited to be donating to the Vermont Main Street Flood Recovery Fund. Great idea, Katie. Very appropriate. Very timely. And I think it'll be just honestly, anything helps. And we're glad to do it.
0: For sure. Speaking of cash money, Nicole H. bought us four coffees. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you, Nicole. Another shout out that we are due for for a lovely listener goes to Jennifer M., Suggested the case we have today via Instagram DMs. And I think you guys are really
1: going to like this case, as in it's very fascinating. A lot of twists and turns. For sure. Like, keep this case in mind for next year's anniversary episode. This is a strong contender already, already for the Whiplash Award because I was whipping, I was lashing. It was intense. It's just very interesting. You'll be like, what the hell at every turn? It's
0: a good one, definitely, and we're very happy to cover it.
1: Absolutely. So thank you, Jennifer. We really appreciate your suggestion. Thanks, Jennifer. And without further ado, today we will be covering the, the murder, murder of Vicki Cushman. Cushman. All right. Per usual, let us get started. But with our sources,
0: Katie, what do you got? I have the Providence Journal, law.umich.edu, which we've used before. Hmm. Turn to 10.com, justicedenied.org, thecinemaholic.com, and casetext.com, which is a court document, baby. Hell yeah. I too had casetext.
1: God bless. I also had case law find law. Ooh, okay. We love it. We love it. I also had justice denied volume 23. I had a- an article from Wesleyan University magazine. I had an article from the Lawrence Journal world. I watched an episode of something called American Justice on YouTube, and I also had The Cinemaholic. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Katie, I would be remiss if you did not
0: start us off with this episode as well. We can't have that, so I will definitely start us off. Thank you. You're welcome. 29-year-old Victoria Cushman, nicknamed Vicky, lived in an apartment in Warwick, Rhode Island, and- Her apartment was in the Alpine Ski and Sports Complex, which is where she worked. Her apartment was on the second floor above corporate offices on the first floor. And then her building was attached to another office building on the side. There was also a large warehouse next to that. And then the Alpine Ski Store was on the other side across from a parking lot. So it was very much an industrial complex it seemed like there really was just office buildings businesses and you really would not be able to tell that there were people living there like it really was not obvious that there were private residences Mm -hmm. unless you have been there before or you knew someone personally who lived there
1: you know reading the description of the where the apartment was looking at a picture of like the office park or whatever you would never know and I was like, why would you put an apartment there? It just seemed kind of bizarre. Yeah. It's very hidden and remote.
0: Definitely. Vicky was known as being kind and always greeting others with a smile, and she was described as generous and a great employee. That
1: takes a lot. Not everyone has that praise. For sure. She also was a graduate of the University of Maryland, and she had served as a United States Army Intelligence Officer, which is wonderful. Wow. Good for her. That's awesome.
0: When Vicky didn't show up to work on August 11th, 1989, a few of her coworkers walked over to her apartment to check on her, which must have been like a hop, skip, and a jump because the apartment's right there. Literally. Like,
1: they noticed she was gone and they were like, oh, better go wake Vicky or something. Cause, but you know, like you said, it wasn't like her. So it was like, oh, we should go up there and wake her up. It's time to work. But the thing was is that they were a little nervous about that. So three of her coworkers went up to try and figure out what was going on.
0: When they got there, they found the door wide open, which already not a good sign. Ominous as fuck. Yeah. Vicky's body was found lying underneath the window in the living room. And next to her body was a fire extinguisher, a pair of yellow gloves that were folded inverted as if someone had just taken them off. Right. Like they were inside out dish gloves that were inside out with the white part facing outward. Right. And these gloves had been discarded on the floor near her body. Warwick police officers who arrived on scene had noticed what looked like scuff marks part of the way up on the outside of the building near a pipe next to Vicky's porch. All of the windows were open and the screen above the porch window right near where Vicky's body was found had been left open. Mm. So because of this, police thought that someone had climbed up the pipe to the porch roof, gone inside through the window, and then tried to rob the police. Mm. But then they ran into Vicky and panicked and killed her. Right. This thought was quickly shot down when they inspected the scene further and realized there were no signs of a struggle and no signs of a robbery. Vicky's purse was right there near her. Her cash was still there. Her credit cards were still there. It seemed like it was almost disregarded completely. Right. Same thing with her jewelry. And there were other items of value just throughout her apartment that Mm -hmm. nothing was taken. Nothing was touched. It really just seemed like At that point, it was not a robbery. And which begs the question was that whoever killed her trying to
1: stage it as a robbery, because, I mean, the way the window was and the scuff marks, that seems kind of like a robbery-type thing, but they didn't even try to make it look like it otherwise because all of her
0: belongings were still there. Right, and anybody who knew Vicky said that she was very concerned with her cat and her cat's well-being. So she very famously did not leave her windows open. She did not like any kind of... An opportunity for her cat to get out because her cat was an inside cat. Right. And she didn't want her cat to get hit by a car. It's an industrial complex. She was, like,
1: paralyzed with fear about that,
0: understandably.
1: So she was religious about keeping that window shut. Why the hell was it open? Mm Mm-hmm. And then, like you said, with the scuff marks leading right down from the pipe below it,
0: that's uh, interesting. Vicky was found wearing only a bathrobe, and she had been wearing a night guard in her mouth. Mm Mm-hmm. In the bedroom, the blankets were turned back, there was a light on, and there was a book with the page saved. So it seemed like Vicky was reading a book, cozy in bed, ready to turn off the light and go to sleep, and then something interrupted her. Mm -hmm. But there was no struggle before she was murdered. Right. There was no signs
1: of even – okay, first of all, no signs of robbery, and no signs of any kind of struggle. Just basically the wounds to her head, essentially, on first glance.
0: Yeah, she also had very extensive bruising on her face, Mm. as well as, of course, her head. Mm. Autopsy confirmed that the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head by bludgeoning. Ugh. There was also evidence of strangulation.
1: Yeah.
0: The murder weapon was determined to be the 17-pound fire extinguisher found right next to Vicky's body, which is horrific. Yeah. Yeah. Time of death was estimated to be between 10.30 p.m. on Thursday, August 10th, and 3 a.m. on Friday, August 11th, which is when she was found a couple hours later. Right. Aside from the information from the autopsy, there really was not a whole lot for police to go off of. Of course, their first instinct was robbery. They very quickly decided that was not the case. And so authorities started looking more into the people in Vicky's life. Mm. Yes, indeed. And you know...
1: They took a Rolodex from her desktop, like literal desktop, not a desktop computer. And they also found, interestingly enough, on that same desktop, a letter, a sealed envelope that was addressed to someone named Scott Hornoff. Now they were like, okay, who's this Scott Hornoff character? Disregard the Rolodex, disregard the robbery theory, disregard everything. Who is this person? Whoever he was, they opened the letter, obviously, and whoever he was, the letter seemed pretty passionate. It indicated that Scott, whoever he was, had been having an affair with Vicky and he was looking to end the relationship and she did not like that. She was writing it was like a a scorned love note vicky was known to be very intense with her dating life her friend said that she was the kind of person who would very quickly get attached and almost be so intimidating that the men usually would leave fairly soon because she was just so intense her friends saying that she just wanted to have a relationship and settle down but unfortunately she didn't find the right person in time and it seemed like given this letter She was really looking for this Scott Hornoff guy. So who is Scott Hornoff? Good question, Katie. He was 27 years old, and he was actually a police officer for the Warwick Police Department. Hmm. Hmm. Can you believe that? He was married, and he had an infant son at the time. He was like seven months old, something. He was a small baby. So Hornoff was actually a part of the Warwick Police Scuba and Underwater Assault Team, which sounds Kind of fucking awesome. I was going to say, that's so cool. That's really cool. Like, what is underwater assault? That's crazy. Like, what does that mean? But that naturally put him at the uh Alpine Ski and Swim or whatever it is shop that Vicky worked at. You know, the all sports store. Quite often. He was there a lot. A lot of the police officers who were a part of that team hung out there. And Vicky was active. And, you know, she did she did some diving herself. So she was you know, it was a good fit for her, job wise, naturally speaking, when two people meet with similar interests, perhaps chemistry can alight. Maybe. That's what we're getting from this letter here. Apparently, what started as a harmless, flirty friendship turned into an extramarital affair. Unfortunately for Hornoff, he was about to be tied into something much worse than an affair, a murder. In the sealed letter to Hornoff, like I kind of touched upon, Vicky disclosed the relationship they were having, acknowledging that he wanted it to end it, and she did not want to meet that title. She wanted to keep it going. On August 11th, 1989, at 4 p.m., that same day Vicky was found, Scott Hornoff went to work at the Warwick Police Department, where he was unaware that he was a suspect, but he had heard talks that there had been a murder in town and that he maybe knew the suspect. Maybe. That was his, this is his account. Shortly after arriving, Hornoff was approached by two colleagues, Captain Carter and Lieutenant Johnson, and told that he was a suspect in the murder of Vicki Cushman. Here's the thing, though. Scott immediately was like, I don't know who that is. I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know. And they, like, procured the letter and
0: they were like. You want to tell us the truth now, buddy? (laughs) Yeah, they were like, okay, well, that's crazy because why is there a letter addressed to your name on it, like, mere feet away from this woman's body? In the inside details that you guys
1: were having an affair and she was really into you and she picked you in every lifetime, blah, blah, blah. And you were telling her that you were going to end an affair. What's that about? And then he begrudgingly said... Okay, okay, okay. I had a, quote, brief sexual encounter with Vicky. He didn't want to share that fact. He said, the reason why I denied it to you guys at first, his colleagues, remember, is because I didn't want you to tell my wife, Rhonda. I was nervous that she would find out and it would ruin our relationship. We have a baby. And they were like, okay, man, I get it. Brothers in blue, we got you. And I mean, that's a, at first glance, that's an, oh, okay, I get it. I can see why maybe that's why you didn't tell anyone. But now that person is dead. She was murdered. You need to be honest or else you're going to be charged with murder. Right? Like, come on. Captain Carter and Lieutenant Johnson reassured Hornoff that they did not care about the affair. Like, at all. His job wasn't in jeopardy. So long as he told the truth to them. Mm. Which he already was not off to a great start. Considering he lied. He lied. But it seems like they kind of took that, like, oh, I didn't want my wife to find out. And we're like, yeah, yeah, that checks out. And uh, therefore, his job was not in jeopardy. They they asked him where he was that night. They asked him all these questions. He volunteered to do a polygraph test, which he passed. Obviously, now we know that is baloney. Who cares? But he did also have a really solid alibi. He was at a party the night before with police officers. That's a pretty solid alibi, although the letter Vicky had written seemed pretty intense, pretty negative, and kind of like maybe pointing at a certain partner who maybe was married and was scared of retaliation for his wife finding out that he was having an affair mm-hmm. he was not charged with her murder. After that questioning with the polygraph test, with talking, hearing about the alibi and his wife had an alibi, they actually contacted his wife and said, hey, they didn't tell her that this woman had been murdered and her husband was a suspect, which I think is kind of shady that they skirted around it and said instead that he was involved in like a motor vehicle accident altercation and they just wanted information. So I think the fact that they kind of avoided that is really fishy to me. Like, they were helping him. I'm fully with you. Fully with you. Very suspicious. Oh, I'd be pissed if I was the wife, man. Right? We talk about this on the podcast a lot. There is a lot of corruption within police departments. And this is just an example of what might just seem like a buddy helping a buddy really curbed an
0: investigation for a dead woman. That's a big price to pay. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it always starts with the boys in blue, my brothers in blue, mm-hmm. backing them up. Yeah. And like we always say, I feel like a lot of times there's pressure to back up your fellow officer because if you don't have their back and then you go out in a situation, will they then have your back when right. it really comes down to it, you know? Right. It's – I don't know. It's crazy and it's not right and it really fucked things up in this case, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: The investigation actually stayed with the Warwick Police Department. They were handling it until 1991. So that's two years later. Then the case went to the state police. So now it was less brothers in blue, less bias. It was more, okay, maybe we should take this over so there's not your employee investigating it himself. Like, when it's possible that he's a suspect. Right. Conflict of interest. Like, come on. (laughs) Seriously. That blew my mind a little bit. Oh,
0: Two years, dude. Yeah. Wow. Yep. The case actually went cold for several years before being reopened, most likely by our friends, the state police. And in 1994, just three years after they took over the case, Scott was arrested for Vicky's murder.
1: Say what now? Now, guys, up until this point, you might be thinking, okay, we have the letter. Then he has this story, he has an alibi, cool, he passed a polygraph, but he did deny knowing her when he most certainly knew her very intimately. This is a little suspicious. Oh, he has his brother's blue backing him up. How did he get away with it? It's obviously him, right? Like, it just seems so obvious. So when they arrested him five years later, a lot of people seemed to think that was appropriate. They almost were like, we knew the whole time. Especially her friends. They were like,
0: of course it was Scott. We knew. Oh, absolutely. In court, multiple witnesses testified that on the night of Vicky's murder, Scott had gone to a fellow officer's house for a party with his wife, which we knew.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Witnesses said that after a few hours, he left just after 11 p.m. and that he was in a good mood. He was slightly intoxicated, but nothing too crazy. Like, he was fine to get in a car and drive. Mm-hmm. Is that ideal? No, no, but he was under the limit. And, you know, it's slightly intoxicated. Yeah. Drunk. No, in a good mood.
1: His wife had already left like half an hour before she, the baby came with them to the party. She went home, you know, a little early, brought the baby home to go to bed. Right. And then so he was left there with his brother and his buddies. And he was just in a good mood, having a good time until he left. Right. Which is, you know, there's, we're starting to establish that
0: timeline. This is where witnesses had very different accounts. Yes. Some witnesses at the party said that they saw Scott come back between 1 a.m. and 2 a.m., and instead of him being in the good mood, you know, personable, getting along, laughing with everybody, witnesses actually made note of how drastic his demeanor had changed. He was pale. He was almost in a daze. And he really didn't say a word to anyone. He walked in, got some cassette tapes, and then left. Yeah, And he just was very pale. His eyes were kind of glazed, and he looked like he was almost in shock. Yeah. And, you know, I could be
1: devil's advocate too. Maybe he got sick from drinking, you know? That was something I was thinking of. Like, oh, he probably threw up. He was probably real drunk
0: yeah and there were a couple people that said at the party there were beers that scott had provided himself in a cooler for everybody to share Mm -hmm. he had a couple of those and then there was also this punch like Mm. this mixed drink punch that had a a bunch of different kinds of alcohols in it that you maybe should not be mixing right um so people were saying okay yeah well he was drinking a bunch of beer he was drinking that punch like that super sugary mix of punch Yeah, he might have vomited. He might have not been feeling well. Right. You know, that's not a good combination. So maybe that's what that was from. And you know, that, what's that saying? Beer before liquor, you've never been sicker.
1: And then liquor before beer, you're in the clear. Something (laughs) like that. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I've always lived by that. Not that I drink beer, but (laughs) I'm wondering if just to be devil's advocate, maybe he just wasn't feeling good. Yeah. Should he have been driving? Definitely not. I would say is fair to say he should not have been driving but mm-hmm. it was 89 people drove drunk and without seat belts and in the back seats of trucks without you know <laughs> yeah. so for fun so
0: i could believe that someone would be drunk driving totally scott's wife Rhonda's testimony could not be any more different from the previous one say what now She had arrived at the party after Scott did with their infant son, like you said, Liz. And then it was getting late. He was starting to get a little fussy. So she took him home. She's like, all right, Scott, whatever. I'll see you when I get home. I'm taking the baby home. We're going the fuck to bed. (laughs) Not her exact words. Paraphrasing. (laughs) What? (laughs) Rhonda then said she knew her husband had returned home at about 11.30 p.m. because she was in bed watching TV and the Johnny Carson show was just starting, which came on at 11.30 p.m. Great. Scott asked Rhonda if she had fed the dogs. She said no. He then went downstairs to feed them and then play with them, do a little rough housing just to get some last energy out before bed. When he came back, Rhonda said he was amusingly drunk because he was trying to take off his socks <laughs> and just was not.
1: We've all been there. Yeah, we've all been there.
0: <laughs> When Rhonda got up at about 2 a.m. to go feed the baby and tend to him, I'm not sure if he was crying, I'm not sure if she just got up to go check on him, feed him, she said he was still in bed asleep. Okay. It was revealed that on August 11th, after police had questioned Rhonda about Scott's whereabouts the night before, after the police had left, she called Steve Branch, Scott's best friend. Mm. And asked him if he knew what happened with Scott last night. Mm. And she had allegedly asked him if he had partied, quote, until the sun came up.
1: Mm. So you mean she wasn't sure if he was in bed or not? Correct. Interesting. Mm -hmm. What's also interesting is that Hornoff's brother, David, was there that night. And he said he left with Scott, Scott Hornoff. And he distinctly remembers seeing his brother go into his house and then he drives away. Scott's testimony, though, where he's recalling the night, he said he did not enter the house. That as soon as his brother left, he turned around, got in his car, and left, or whatever. So, now you have three different stories that supposedly, for your solid alibi, kind of is poking holes in it. Mm -hmm. One thing, again, devil's advocate. I'm really a friend of the devil right now. You have to think. This is five years later. So... Could there be holes in their stories because of memory loss? Absolutely. Especially if he was drunk. His brother was also drinking. You know, they could misremember. For sure. She had a baby and was exhausted. And that baby probably wanted to eat every three hours. And, you know, it's tiring. And it was five years ago. Could there be some discrepancies? Yeah. Could they be unintentional? Yeah. I would say so. For sure. Absolutely.
0: In court Scott maintained his innocence and stated, "Am I guilty of something?" "Yes, I am. I broke my sacred wedding vows and for that I will never forgive myself." And you know, all this is coming to light. At this point, I believe Rhonda is still with Scott. She's better than me. They had
1: 3 sons at this point, and which is just so sad.
0: She's better than me. I'd be behind bars. I know I'd be I like, myself would be behind bars, same, bro, I'm telling you right now. I know, now. seriously. Of course,
1: Vicky's friends also testified, trying to really prove that there was an affair going on. I don't think necessarily that Scott was outright denying the affair at this point, but he was, like, playing it down. So according to Vicky's friend and co-worker, Joanne Arquetto, Vicky had come to her, like, five-ish weeks before she was killed and shared that she was dating a Warwick police officer. Vicky did disclose to Joanne that he was married, but... He had assured her that he was going to end his marriage so that they could be together. She said that he told her it was their marriage wasn't on an even keel that things were falling apart, the baby blah blah blah, and she was real excited and Joanne said she seemed intensely interested in this man suddenly, according to Joanne, on August ninth nineteen eighty nine two days before Vicky was killed. Vicky came into work, clearly very upset, and shared with her friend that the police officer she was seeing had ended their affair and was not going to end his marriage. Joanne said that Vicky seemed angry but also surprised, because according to Joanne, the way Vicky was talking, maybe this was just Vicky's fantasies and her perception, it seemed like he was going to leave his wife for her and the baby and they were going to be together forever and he wanted to be with
0: her, and now suddenly that changes? Interesting at one point Scott had actually brought and I heard I saw in one article it was described as paraded. he paraded his wife and his infant son around the store when he knew that Vicky would be there to kind of say, this is my decision. here I am with my wife and my infant son I'm not leaving them I'm with them this is my family. Sorry, Vicky it, would that be cash or card like right. just so infuriating, like, even if Vicky might have been a little, let's say, in fantasy land, and maybe she was reading too much into this, and it genuinely was a sexual affair, just a couple encounters, and that was it, and she was thinking it was more of a romantic thing, and it wasn't that to Scott, he's kind of a piece of shit himself for leading her on. I would say that's a little douchey. Even if you have sex with somebody one time that's not your wife, hello, you have a wife taking care of your infant son at home. Right. Get it together, bro. Yeah. Scott was found guilty of first-degree murder in 1996 and was sentenced to life in prison. I'm going to paint the picture.
1: A man named Bill Devereaux was an attorney at Holland Knight LLP in Providence, Rhode Island. His firm largely dealt with criminal defense charges. On November 1st of 2002... So now it's been 13 plus-ish years since Vicky's murder. Bill Devereaux received a phone call bright and early at 7 a.m. This wasn't super weird to him, though, because he gave his phone number to some of his clients when the end of the trial was coming and things like that. On the other end of the line, though, was an old acquaintance. His name was Todd Barry. He was 45 years old. And they had once met several years ago through a mutual friend who was dealing with something similar to that Bill Devereaux was dealing with in his personal life. And they were, you know, able to bond over that, give support. And that was it. You know, acquaintances. Barry started off the phone call by telling Devereaux that he was in, quote, a real bad situation and he needed some legal help. Devereaux was like, oh, did he get it? You know, DUI, something kind of, you know, speeding ticket, things like that. No. Barry then proceeded to say that he needed to come forward and confess to a homicide that he had committed 14 years ago. So now Bill is like, what the fuck (laughs) is happening? This is someone I knew once, barely, and now he's calling me? Holy shit. Barry then asked Devereaux if he had knew or heard about the Vicky Cushman case from 1989. Devereaux said yes, he did remember it. And Barry said, well, the cop didn't do it. I did. Drop all the mics right now. When I read
0: that, I was like, come again? What? I couldn't believe it. And to keep that inside for 13-something years? Mm Mm-hmm. Come. Um. I know. Devereaux continued to counsel
1: Barry over the phone, telling them if he did come forward and confess, he was going to go to jail and he was going to lose his family. Because at this point, as a defense lawyer, Devereaux wasn't – he had the right to not say anything. You know, it was client attorney privilege or whatever. So he said, you confess to me. Okay, but you do not have to go to the police or whatever. Barry responded with, quote, I either do this or I go jump off the Narragansett Bridge. I can't live with myself any longer. Then the real details of Vicky's brutal murder came to light. So Todd Barry, at the time was a carpenter and he actually had been involved with Vicky before Vicky had met Scott Hornoff. It was a physical relationship, a sexual one. Barry says that Vicky was obsessive. He recalls her being obsessive. And he said that she even would show up at like his job sites around town. And that really freaked him out. So he was like, Okay, I don't want this anymore. And that was that. On the night of August 10th, his actual, what turned out to be his future wife, his girlfriend at the time, was out of town. So he was out with his friends at the bars, you know, getting drunk, whatever. While he was out, he drank a lot, smoked some weed, and suddenly he found himself in like a blackout state. He said he got in his car and he had a really sudden urge to see Vicky. Barry claims at this point that he doesn't remember every part. He says, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's been 13, 14 years. I was blackout drunk. It's hard to remember. Barry claims he went up to Vicky's roof and entered through a window before waking her up. Barry woke her and he said she didn't seem frightened. She was calm. He claimed their meetings usually occurred at night anyway. So she was like, oh, Barry, Todd, Barry, what are you doing here or whatever, you know? They talked in the living room. Vicky told Barry that she had been having an affair with a married police officer. He was like, why? And he told her that's probably not a good idea. And then they were like, meh, meh, meh. They kind of started arguing. And then Vicky looks and sees the window and she becomes disgruntled because like you said, Katie, she was paralyzed with fear that her cat would get out and get hit by a car. So she kept the windows closed. Upon seeing the screen propped up in... on the inside of the house, with the window wide open, she got really pissed, and she was so mad she started yelling at Todd. She was like, "Oh my God, my cat! I'm going to sue you!" She said, "My, if my cat is killed, I'm going to sue you." All of a sudden, Todd Barry was overcome with rage, and he began to strangle Vicky. And then he proceeded to pick up the nearest item he could—that 17-pound fire extinguisher—and he bashed her over the head with it. Barry then left the apartment and waited he was positive that the police would come knock on his door and it would be over but they never came and so finally his guilty conscience got the best of him and he approached this lawyer and he said listen this is what i did
0: isn't that insane after he let someone go down for his murder Mm -hmm. he
1: for so long At that point, Scott Hornoff had been in jail for about six and a half years. And you know what? Six and a half years, too long. I can get that, maybe that sense of peace, like, oh, I got away with it. Thank God. But how, I mean, obviously it worked on Todd Berry, but that guilt has to eat you alive. Knowing someone's suffering in jail, a cop in jail, we all know what happens there. Right. It just ate him alive. He said he just felt too guilty. He couldn't live anymore. And he had a wife and two young children, and he knew that he was giving it up.
0: Wow. Thank God he came forward and didn't just kill himself. True. Very true. Very true. Because no one really would have even put it together. They would have been like, wow, that's so sad. We're so sorry for your loss. You seem like a great guy. Right. Authorities actually initially thought that Todd was crazy until he told them the intimate details about the murder that only the murderer would have known. So police are like, oh, yeah, it's. (laughs) it's you oh shit there actually was a part during his confession it was taped i watched some of the video footage todd threw up his arms and he said i just lost it he went on to break down in tears and say that he never meant to kill vicky i'm sure he didn't but he did right exactly after serving six years four months and 18 days scott was released from prison Todd was sentenced to 10 to 30 years in prison in 2002 for second-degree murder, and he is currently at the Cranston Minimal Security Prison and will be eligible for release in 2025. Just a measly year and a half away. That's crazy.
1: As for Scott, well, he lost his job. He lost his marriage. His wife left him. He lost his family. So he, you know, this was all because of this wrongful conviction. So he fought the city. And he was granted $64,000 per year in disability, which, I mean, with inflation, he should buy I would hope he's maybe getting a little more now if he's not, like, retired, quote-unquote. Yeah. He was also rewarded $600,000 in settlement from the city.
0: Scott stated, quote, There were a lot of moments of bitterness while I was in prison, but I'm doing my best to leave the anger and the resentment at the door and not let it consume me. There's a lot of emotions going on. On one hand, I was happy for me and for my family, you know, finally having this weight off of her shoulders and this shadow taken away. I felt a great deal of sadness for Vicky's family.
1: Yeah. And that is the crazy twister of a story of the awful murder of Vicky Cushman. So confusing. And so just total twists and turns And I'd be really curious to hear what you guys, the listeners, think. Did you believe Scott did
0: the murder? Because as I was reading through it, I was like, wow, this guy's fucking guilty. I know. I feel kind of dumb because I fell for that hook, line, and sinker. I was like, oh, he's a cop. Uh, Of course he did it. 40% of police officers beat their wives. And that's only what we know, documented. It's like, oh, he's going down, bro. And then I was like, like, Todd? Todd, Who the fuck are you? (laughs) (laughs) Ugh.
1: So I want to know what you guys think. Tell us do you think that Todd's sentence is appropriate? He was sir basically he's serving twenty-three-ish years in prison before he's eligible for parole, right? While Scott was sentenced to life. What's up with that? Very interesting dynamic. Definitely let us know what you think. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Any. All lowercase. Or you can shoot us an email at Any at gmail.com.
0: We also have a website, truecrimene.com. You could go to our contact page and you can be anonymous if you so choose, leave your name if you so choose. Let us know, seriously, your thoughts on this episode, maybe other cases we've done. You can also use that submission tool to send us ideas for cases based in New England, please, that you'd like to hear us cover. Thank you again, Jennifer M., for suggesting this case to us. If you scroll down a little further, you could use our Buy Us A Coffee button. You can click the little square that says thank you and go to our Buy Us A Coffee page where you can buy myself a coffee and Liz a non-coffee-related, still caffeinated, beverageino. Yes, please. But at the end of the day, you really do not have to spend any money on us. We'd rather that you donate it to either of the incredible causes that we mentioned at the top of this episode. But, yeah, we just are really appreciative of you guys for being here, for listening, as always. And thank you guys so much. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.